0: As Terry said, the subject of this lecture is the English Provincial Book Trade in the 18th Century, and I shall from time to time show you some maps in case you happen not to be acquainted with some of the remote minutiae of English geography into which this little expedition is going to take us. One day, perhaps when the 18th Century SDC is completed, we may have some idea about how many books were actually published in England in the 18th century. At present, the best sort of guesstimate that we can arrive at is that there may have been perhaps half a million editions of books and pamphlets and maybe as many more, again, ephemeral items. If we take the average edition size as 2,000, we arrive at the astonishing figure of 1,000 million copies put onto the market between 1,700 and 1,800. I can't talk when anyone writes in, walks in front of the lens because I can't see. <laughs> this in a country whose population was about 5.5 million at the beginning of the century and just under nine at the end. To put this another way, if 10,000 books were published in 1801, the number of books published per annum was almost exactly the same as it was in 1980 if we calculate it as copies per adult head of population. Now, about one-tenth of the population at the end of the 18th century lived in London. Let me, since I'm in New York, make a very generous estimate of metropolitan cultural superiority, and let's say that half of those books were sold in London. That leaves us with six and a half million copies a year that were sold somewhere else. And that really is the problem to which the title refers. How did those other nine-tenths of the people learn what books were available? How did they get hold of their books? What trade mechanisms existed to serve them? How easy was it for a professional man um, up in the north of England or for a country gentleman in the West Country to participate in the mainstream of literary and cultural and political and social life which was embodied in print? Now, underlying these questions is an assumption which I take to be a demonstrable fact, that London was, and still is, the undisputed center of English publishing. That dominance had always been marked, and I think it was probably inevitable, but it had certainly been um, strengthened by its institutionalization in the powers granted to the Stationers Company in 1557. Those powers effectively confined commercial publishing to members of the company, hence to London. When the executive decrees which controlled the trade were replaced by parliamentary legislation in 1662, the position was alleviated only very slightly. In effect, legal printing was still confined to London on a commercial scale. That legislation, the 1662 Printing Act, lapsed in 1695 and that is one of the key events in the history of the English book trade from many different points of view. Theoretically, there were now no geographical restrictions on printing, and legal restraints of other kinds were minimal, and at least at that point, very vague. Yet London continued to be the only national center of English publishing. 200 years of effective monopoly, reinforced by decree and by statute, had enabled the leading members of the London trade to build up a virtually unchallengeable position of domination. They controlled the three essential elements of any successful publishing enterprise, copyrights, production facilities, distribution networks. And they were so firmly entrenched in these key areas that they could not be displaced. But just to protect themselves, they developed a whole series of mechanisms which were designed to ensure that displacement wasn't merely improbable but impossible. All the familiar landmarks of the trade's internal and external organization in the 18th century, trade sales, copyright law, and the trade's interpretation of it, wholesaling conjures, were developed between 1695 and 1714 as a conscious attempt to defend and preserve and extend the collective monopoly of a small group of London booksellers. Consequently, The problem of not being in London was first and foremost to establish the physical and financial links through through which books could be obtained and paid for. But there was another side to the coin. The sale of books outside London became increasingly important to the London trade. It provided a growing percentage of total sales, and however well the Londoners might protect their monopoly, protective action was to no avail if they couldn't fulfill the increasing demand. In the free market conditions which had been accidentally created in 1695, the Londoners had to ensure that they could provide a proper level of service. What was that demand? Why did it increase? What kind of books were required? One way in which we can judge this, and it's not the only way, and it's in some respects not the most satisfactory way, is from booksellers catalogues and advertisements, and from the very closely related catalogues of the commercial circulating libraries. From those sources, we can, I think, define a fairly wide spectrum of provincial society which represented book consumers. Even the earliest provincial booksellers' stock inventories show a remarkable range and depth. And by 1750, there were very few provincial towns of any size, and at that period we mean maybe 5,000 inhabitants or more, without at least one reasonably well-stocked bookshop. There were a few local variations in stock, but there is a remarkable homogeneity in the catalogues and inventories, despite any marginal regional special interests. From Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England to the latest fashionable novel, roughly the same books seem to have been available throughout the country. The book buyers were what we have to call, although it is anachronistic, the middle class. More accurately, landowners and prosperous tenant farmers in the country, and professional men, lawyers and physicians and schoolmasters, and most important of all, clergymen in the towns, with a rather smaller element of tradespeople. Their expectation from books was surprisingly practical. The popular works included books like Giles Jacob's New Complete Parish Officer, which um, was essentially a handbook for the holders of the voluntary offices on which local government depended. Boots' solicitor's guide and tradesman's instructor, James Mackenzie's History of Health, which was a popular medical book, and Sir John Hill's many works on horticulture and agriculture. These are just a few examples out of thousands. Nor is it accidental that so many of the part books were practically oriented. In fact, these were aimed largely at a provincial audience. The demand, however, was not entirely utilitarian. The provincial shops certainly reflected fashionable taste in many ways stocking, for example, the travel, travel books in great numbers, and that was a great 18th century vogue. Later in the century, novels feature very strongly in the catalogues, and history and biography as well. The most notable gap, and I think a very significant one, which I can't really pursue this evening, is in current political literature, especially in ephemeral pamphlets. There are a few shops which had some reasonable stocks of this, but in general, political pamphlets were rather difficult to obtain in the country. The demand then was fairly specific. It came from a class which wanted practical guidance in its business and domestic affairs and light reading including non-fiction for recreation. Now that class increased in size very substantially during the century, especially after about 1760. The first phase of industrialization brought with it an urgent need for the services which are essential to a functioning capitalist economy services like accountancy and bookkeeping and banking and insurance. All of these changed to accommodate changing circumstances, but there were no controls on the entry into any of these occupations, so printed guides were in fact the only way to learn how to do the job, and this was one very important um, factor in the expansion of the provincial book trade. But the new wealth brought with it not only this increased demand for technical and commercial knowledge, but also a great increase in the time and disposable income available for leisure. This phenomenon, the development of what social historians now call the urban gentry, was of the utmost importance to the book trade. The larger populations of the towns included a larger professional class which was willing and able to support institutions like theaters and concert halls and literary and historical and debating societies. For lighter entertainment or for private leisure, reading, especially of fiction, was one of the few occupations readily available. The development of a cultured, or at least culture-seeking middle class, provided a vast market for literature and for non-fiction in the provincial towns, and this market was only partly filled by the commercial circulating libraries. The bookshops proliferated, and by the end of the century, there were perhaps a thousand of them scattered around the country outside London. Their stocks were substantial, and as we'll see in a moment, some of their proprietors became very wealthy men. You can now see why the retention of the provincial market was so important to the London trade, and why adequate distribution and supply systems uh, were essential to the provincial booksellers. From the provincial point of view, the profitable books were London books, or rather national books, since uh, the broad pattern of demand is uniform. The London trade owned the copyrights in these books, and they alone had the capital with which to finance production on a sufficient scale. Uh, Printing and publishing were undertaken in the provinces, and we'll come back to that later, but it was on a very small scale indeed. So distribution was the key to success, both for the Londoners and for the provincials. And the key to the understanding of distribution lies in the study of imprints. I think everyone now agrees that imprints are a sort of book trade code. And if we can crack the code, we can learn a great deal about the financing, production, and marketing of books. Some imprints, um, let me explain that rather than show you title pages which are wholly illegible, I've typed out some of these things so that they're semi-legible at any rate. Some imprints like this, which in fact is the first edition of Johnson's Lives of the Poets, um, simply record the names of the booksellers who jointly financed the enterprise. It was printed for them, for C. Bathurst, etc., etc., etc. Similarly, Strawn and Cable were the joint owners of the copyright of Macpherson's Ossian when they published this edition in 1790. We can document their ownership from external sources. But there is an oddity here. This is transcribed exactly from the book. You'll notice that Cadle's address is given, but Strawn's isn't. Now, why is this distinction made? There's no obvious reason for it. They were both very well-known members of the trade. There cannot have been anyone in the trade in 1790 who didn't know where these two people were. Um, I I haven't got time to present all the evidence. Let me just give you the answer to the question. It is that, in fact, the book was being distributed from Cadle's shop, not from Strawn's, and that the trade were required to apply to Cadle, not to Strawn, for their copies. Now, there is the imprint as code. Another example may exemplify this point. This is part of the imprint, and I'll reveal the rest of it to you later, um, of Swedenberg's Concerning the Earths in our Solar System of 1785. Robert Hindmarsh, um, whose name I'm ashamed to say does have a capital letter in the original, um, Robert Hindmarsh was a printer, but in this case, he was also what we would call the publisher. But look at the other four names, Buckland, Dennis, Brown, Cuffel. in each case with their addresses. But the book, you will see, is sold by them, not printed for them, sold also by them. They were not, as far as we can tell from this imprint, sharers in the copyright. They were distributors, or what we would now call wholesalers. For the provincial booksellers, the wholesalers were a vital element in the profitability of their businesses. In 1795, William Edwards of Halifax, up there in the north of England, who was better known, of course, as a bookbinder, but was also a very substantial bookseller, wrote to Thomas Hood in London to complain that Hood had charged him £2.15, shillings plus commission, as he added, underlined in the letter, for a copy of John Aiken's description of the country from 30 to 40 miles around Manchester. He'd bought a copy from another bookseller for £2.12 and sixpence, and no commission, which, as he said, makes a material difference when the cost of carriage is added, The retail price in London was three pounds, three shillings, and if Edwards charged his customer that price, and the evidence suggests that the provincial booksellers did on the whole charge the London prices whenever they could, um, you can see that the two shillings and sixpence difference plus the unspecified amount of the cost of carriage and commission made a real difference to Edwards' very slim profit margin. Why did Hood charge so much? Because he was not the wholesaler. Edward's other copy came from John Stockdale, who was the publisher and who had given Hood the usual discount to which Hood had had added two and six and a fee for his services. So it was only by knowing which bookseller to apply to that the provincial bookseller could get the full discount and maximize his profits. I said a moment ago that Edwards was paying the transport costs and indeed transport was a vital element in the distribution system. The roads were improved steadily throughout the century to the great benefit of all distributive trades. If speed was important, stagecoaches were used. And in really urgent cases, we find booksellers actually specifying which service they want. In 1749, Joseph Cote of Eton asked John Nurse to send six books per the Windsor coach on Saturday morning. And in 1808, William Harrod wrote from uh, Market Harborough in the South Midlands, um, asking Nichols to send him a single book. Would you therefore be pleased to forward me a copy immediately by the Hope Coach, Angel in Angel Street? But the coaches were expensive, and for most purposes, the common carrier's wagon was adequate, if rather slow. It did present some problems, and I think there's great significance in a letter from another of Nichols's customers in which he asks for about £50 pounds worth of bu- books to be sent down by wagon and says at the end, underlined several times, pray be sure they're well packed. The great advantage of the carriers was, in fact, cheapness. But for bulk transport, water carriage was often used. Uh, When Thomas Cadle sent a parcel of 100 books to George Roots in Kingston on Thames, he advised Roots that from the size of the parcel, road carriage would be attended with a greater degree of expense than water. It could also be um, attended with a very great degree of danger, as the Bodleian Library discovered when one of its collections finished up at the bottom of the Thames on its way to Oxford in the early 18th century. The development of the canals was a matter of great interest to several provincial booksellers and a number actually invested in them. One of the more interesting is Richard Crutwell who was one of the largest booksellers in Bath in Somerset and who is actually specific at one point that he bought shares in a canal designed to give direct water transport to London because he thought it would help his business. Um, And some booksellers also used coastal transport, um, coastal vessels. Um, at sea. The turnpiking of the roads and the improvement of the inland waterways ensured that transportation was no longer a major problem by about 1785. It was slow by modern standards, but it was regular, and it was probably as efficient as the available technology could make it. So physical supply of books was not really a problem. But how did the provincials discover what books were available? As early as 1657, uh, a bookseller in Newcastle-on-Tyne who was confusingly called William London, issued a catalogue of his stock for circulation throughout the north of England, claiming, I think, very optimistically that the books were, to my own knowledge, sold at most places of repute in the country. It was a provincial enterprise, but it was, I think, um, an important influence on Starkey and Clavel when they began to issue the term catalogs 11 years later in 1668. The term catalogs, as I'm sure you know, were issued quarterly from 1668 to 1709 and are in fact the first serial bibliography of current publications in any European country. The lists were cumulated four times and in the preface to the 1696 cumulation, uh, Clavel explains their purpose and incidentally casts a good deal of light on the provincial trade and proves once again that it is quite interesting to read the preface of reference books. It is in the interests of all the booksellers, wrote Clavel, to have this general catalogue in their shops. And those gentlemen that bite, that live at some distance from their booksellers, it would be convenient when they give commission for any books to say who they are or were printed for, that when such orders reach London, they might be got with the more ease. Clavel assumed that the public, as well as the trade, would consult the term catalogues, but he also assumed that the orders would be placed through booksellers. You notice his emphasis on the need to state who they are or were printed for, a fact which is found in the catalogue, and this, of course, enabled the bookseller to send the order to the appropriate London distributor. It's interesting to comp- <coughs> It is interesting to compare this with a similar statement made by John Worrell in his annual catalogue of 1737. The following list, wrote Worrell, the following list was principally intended for those gentlemen, ladies, etc., who the etc. were, I have no idea, who live remote from London, or seldom see the multitude of newspapers wherein books are advertised, that they might, for a small expense, see what books have been published in this preceding year. Here the provincial emphasis is explicit. Worrell was a London bookseller, well aware of the growing importance of the provincial market. But you'll see that he offers his catalog as a supplement to newspaper advertisements, which in the 40 years since Clavel had written, had become one of the two most important media for advertising books. Since the earliest days of the crudely printed newsbooks of the mid 17th century, book advertisements had featured in newspapers. But the news books had a very limited circulation And it wasn't really until after the evolution of a form of parliamentary government in 1689 that the great explosion of the newspapers began. The polarization of the system into something like a two-party system between 1700 and 1714 stimulated the development of a new kind of newspaper which was politically committed, commercially profitable and nationally circulated. The first successful London Daily was the Daily Courant of 1702. But for many years, it was the thrice-weekly evening papers which were most commonly found in the provinces. These evening papers were published on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, the nights on which the mail coaches left London for the provinces. In every issue, book advertisements abound, always including that essential name of the London wholesaler. The newspapers achieved large national circulations, As early as 1726, 2,200 copies of each issue of the London Journal were sent into the country by mail. In 1796, 23,500 newspapers were leaving London every day, a total of over 8.5 million copies a year. As I said, they were sent by mail. Now you may find it difficult to believe, but the post office was commonly regarded as by far the most efficient organ of government in the 18th century and it turned itself into a sort of huge national news agency. In fact, the whole trade in the provincial distribution of London newspapers was in the hands of post office officials. I might say to their immense profit, uh, there was a parliamentary inquiry into this in the 1790s which revealed that there was one official at the post office in London who had a salary of 50 pounds a year and an income of 7,000. The success of the newspapers in gaining a national audience made them an ideal advertising medium for centrally produced but locally distributed products like books. The second great channel of information about current books was to be found in the monthly magazines. In fact, the phenomenal success of The Gentleman's Magazine from 1731 onwards can be at least partly attributed to the accuracy and comprehensiveness of the list of publications which Cave and his successors always included. The Gentleman's Magazine sounded the death knell of the separately published catalogs of new books. (coughs) It carried the same information in a much more agreeable form. The magazines, moreover, provided a direct link between London booksellers and provincial customers. Although some magazines were circulated through the post office like newspapers, it was far more usual for provincial booksellers to act as subscription agents. The purchaser who wished to order one of the listed books could do so through his local bookseller, who then had the necessary London contacts to fulfill the order. I've already quoted a couple of examples of provincial booksellers writing specially to London for books wanted by their customers. This may seem to reduce the provincial booksellers to little more than intermediaries. And so, in some respects, they were. Some, however, were more important than others. And to understand the structure of the provincial trade, we have to study this a little more closely. Now, anyone who's familiar with 18th century British books is familiar with the names of a few provincial booksellers. Uh, Benjamin Collins in Salisbury, for example, Um, Simmons over there in Canterbury, Uh, Crutwell in Bath, Swinney in Birmingham, uh, maybe half a dozen others. Who were these people? What was their role in publication and distribution? Why do their names and no others appear in imprints? Well, I'll now reveal the rest of the imprint of the Swedenberg. I think it's fairly clear that the three additional names which have now magically appeared Clark and Haslinden in Manchester and Mills in Bristol, have a role which is identical with that of the four London booksellers by whom the book was sold. It's also clear that these three provincial booksellers are to be differentiated from the other booksellers in town and country. In other words, it looks from this kind of imprint as if there were provincial wholesalers and distributors of some books perhaps operating on a regional basis, as well as the national distributors in London. Why this was so and why it wasn't a universal practice can be understood by studying imprints like these. You can now see why the ones I want you to read have been typed out. Um, This is London printed and sold by W. Jackson in Oxford and sold in London by R. Walker. Um, another example of the same kind of thing, London printed and sold by Martha Gurney, and may likewise be had at Mr. Austin Printer at Hartford. This, you will see, is an account of a trial uh, at Hartford Assizes. For a detailed um, discussion, I'm going to use um, another book. This is the imprint of an exposition of the Catechism of the Church of England by Thomas Vivian. Dr. Vivian, you'll not be surprised to learn from the title of his book, was a clergyman. He was an Oxford graduate, he wrote a couple of books, and he won himself a minor reputation as a theologian. He was born at Truro in Cornwall, and was for 50 years vicar of a parish in Devon. And now, since we really do get down to the minutiae, Sherban, which is the main provincial name is down there, you can see, and we're talking about the area west of uh, there. I've got a blow-up of that, I hope. Yes, splendid. Um, the Dillies, um, who were the London booksellers who appeared in the imprint, were well-established. Uh, they were in a large way of business, and they were effectively using local distributors to tap and, I suspect, to saturate the market in the area where the author was best known and the book likely to be of special interest. Let's go back to the imprint now. How was this actually achieved? How did a bookseller in London establish the sort of contacts which enabled him to set up a distributive operation, a distribution operation like this? Well, the clue in this case is the name of Robert Goadby of Sherburn. Now, I said earlier that 18th-century imprints should be read as a sort of code Part of the code was the relative position of the names in the imprint. And as we know, for example, senior shareholders come first in the imprints of books with jointly owned copyrights. Something similar can be detected here, although in this case it doesn't relate to seniority in the trade. This is part of John Nicholls' account of Goadby. Mr. Robert Goadby, a man of the utmost industry and integrity, carried on a large and extensive business as a printer and bookseller at Sherborne, in Dorsetshire. Nichols gives an account of Goadby's activities as an author before reverting to his business affairs. (coughs) Mr. Goadby was also the conductor of several miscellaneous and periodical publications, which, being sold extremely cheap and very widely circulated, had considerable good effect. In the west of England in particular, his publications were read by great numbers who scarce ever read anything else. What Nichols doesn't make clear, however, is that Goadby's highly profitable business was based on his success as a newspaper owner. He started his first newspaper in 1744, when he was 23 years old. In 1749, he moved it to Sherborne, and in fact, the successor of that newspaper is still in existence. By the mid-1750s, his paper was circulating throughout Devon and Cornwall, as well as in Dorset and in parts of Somerset, and was the leading local newspaper in the west of England. Now, the provincial newspapers, unlike the London newspapers, were weeklies, and they circulated independently of the post office. They were circulated, in fact, through the book trade. The proprietors had agents in towns where they hoped the paper would circulate, and establishing a network of agents was an essential part of establishing a newspaper. Many of the agents were booksellers before they became news agents. Any who were not became very deeply enmeshed in the book trade very quickly. Proprietors and agents alike employed delivery people, newsboys or newsmen, as they're sometimes called, who actually delivered the paper to subscribers. They also collected the payments from them. Now, this two-way traffic of newspapers and money between purchaser, newsboy, agent, and proprietor Provided in effect a direct link with the London book trade, since the newspaper proprietors themselves were in constant contact with London. From London, they obtained paper, they obtained printing materials and equipment, indeed, they obtained news. They were thus the ideal link between men, uh, they were thus the ideal link between the London and provincial book trade. They had widespread local distribution networks at their command, and their credit was good. So men like Goadby, Benjamin Collins of the Salisbury Journal, James Abry of the Kentish Post, hence men like Goadby, Benjamin Collins of the Salisbury Journal, James Abry of the Kentish Post, and Thomas Aris of the Birmingham Gazette, appear in London imprints as regional distributors. Needless to say, it was never quite as neat and tidy as I've suggested, but this principle was widespread. So the provincial newspaper printers added to the profits of their newspapers the very considerable profit of being the largest bookseller for miles around. Goby himself died a very wealthy man. He left about 3,000 pounds in cash legacies. I don't know how one starts multiplying these figures to arrive at uh, modern dollar equivalents. Try something like 60 or 70, it won't be too far wrong. Um, he also left his business and he left a number of endowments to the local parish church. And he died a wealthy, respectable member of his community. He wasn't unique in this. Uh, William Jackson, who was the founder of the Oxford Journal, became a banker. He left over £10,000 and a great deal of property. In 1790, um, Robert Rakes of the Gloucester Journal estimated his annual profits from his newspaper alone at 1,500 a year. The newsmen who made possible the wide circulation which ensured the success of these and other people were also vital links in the chain of book supply. The many book advertisements in the provincial newspapers in the middle decades of the century all begin with a form of words like this, which is actually from the Northampton Mercury in 1780. The following books may be had of the printer hereof and of the men who carry this news. Now, not only books were involved. As I said earlier, the booksellers also dealt with periodicals. In 1760, for example, an advertisement for the London magazine, which appeared in Burroughs Worcester Journal, informed readers that it was sold by the news carriers. So the provincial newspaper proprietors like Goadby were of crucial importance in the provincial distribution of books, and it's for this reason that we find their names in imprints. In this case, I argue that Goadby, through his network of agents and newsmen, orchestrated the distribution of Vivian's book in the west of England, and that is why he comes first in the list of provincial distributors. The regional distributive role of the newspaper proprietors and a few other large provincial booksellers leads me into another aspect of the provincial trades activities which can't be ignored. I've already spoken of the concentration of publishing in London. This was compounded by the fact that some London stationers were also major importers of paper. And remember that well into the 18th century, most paper used in England was indeed imported. So the book trade in the broadest sense from its very beginning had been a centralized trade of large merchants wholesaling to a national network of retailers. It was possibly one of the very first trades, in fact, to be centralized in this way. Um, Of course, the quickening pace of economic and industrial development began to change this in the second half of the 18th century, but before the Industrial Revolution, National distribution of any product was the exception, not the rule. But there were such exceptions, and some products, both goods and services, were indeed distributed by central suppliers. The booksellers, with their well-established physical and financial links with London, were the major provincial beneficiaries of these pre-industrial developments in centralized supply. i just mentioned paper and in fact the sale of paper was the economic cornerstone of the whole provincial book trade. Once we look below the level of the newspaper proprietors and regional distributors, we find that the people whom for convenience we call booksellers were in fact stationers who also sold books. Uh, It's exemplified, I think, by the case of John Clay of Daventry in Northamptonshire uh, who is one of the very few provincial booksellers whose financial records have survived intact. Over a period of about half a century, Clay and his sons had shops in three towns. Over the whole of that time, they made about 25% of their income from selling books. The other 75% came very largely from the sale of paper, and as far as I can judge, in this they were entirely typical. Their involvement in the paper trade turned the booksellers into tax collectors. As you know, from 1710 onwards, there was a tax on paper. In addition, many documents like wills and indentures and mortgages and contracts of all kinds had to be stamped to validate them. Now, as the suppliers of the materials on which these stamps were impressed, um, the booksellers were very deeply enmeshed in the collection of the revenue duty from stamps. By the end of the century, nearly half the stamp distributors in England and Wales were booksellers. And according to one early 19th, 19th century estimate, This added to their incomes by something in the order of a 1,000 a year. The book trade connections of paper, and hence of stamp duties, are fairly obvious. That of proprietary medicines, perhaps rather less so. But again, we're dealing with a centrally distributed product available only from a unique source of supply, not the publisher, but the patentee. This connection is uh, well established in the 17th century, and it continues throughout the 18th. Patent medicines, like books, needed a national market to be profitable, and since the book trade represented the only truly national distribution network, it was natural for the patentees to make use of it. Almost all booksellers sold medicine. The newsmen took orders for medicine, and the lists of medicine agents in newspaper newspaper advertisements coincides in almost every case with the list of the newspaper's own agents. The book trades highly developed distribution network was so crucial to the medicine trade and the medicine trade itself so profitable that some London booksellers actually bought shares in patents. The most famous of these of course was John Newbery, the pioneer publisher of children's books who owned the patent in the most famous of all the medicines, Dr. James's fever powder. Uh, Dr. James's fever powder was a legendary concoction. It's accused of having killed Oliver Goldsmith It's said to, of course, King George III's insanity. Uh, Christopher Smart believed that it saved his life, and as a result, he conferred on it what is, so far as I know, a unique honor for a medicine. He dedicated a poem to it, a hymn to the supreme being. It also makes a dramatic appearance in the most famous of all Newbury's children's books, because in the original version, Little Goody Two Shoes is saved by a timely dose of Dr. James's fever powder. A third centralized service was that of insurance. Until almost the end of the century, the whole insurance industry was based in London, and the book trade was an ideal channel. An astonishing number of booksellers, again to their considerable profit, became insurance agents. You will have noticed that I've so far mentioned provincial printing only in the context of the newspapers. This omission and the implied emphasis is quite deliberate. The trade which I've described to you was distributive, not productive. It shared to the full in the prosperity of the world's first industrial society. There were, of course, a few failures, there were even one or two fairly spectacular bankruptcies, but surprisingly few. A provincial bookseller who recognized the limitations of his role and the need to diversify his business made a comfortable living out of what I've always supposed to be a fairly agreeable occupation. Why then the problem? Well, the problem was really for the would-be publisher and his printer. Printers did move into the major provincial cities very soon after the lapse of the Printing Act in 1695. Indeed, within a few weeks, the city of Bristol actually invited a printer to set up business there. There were maybe 20, newspa- 20 printers in the provinces by 1714, perhaps 75 by 1750. In 1756, William Blackstone um, wrote that there's now hardly a country town of any name but what furnishes one or more printers. These printers were not, however, primarily engaged in book printing. Some never, probably never printed a book at all. A few were printing newspapers but all of them were printing what we now lump together under the general head of ephemera. What's usually called ephemera, I would prefer to call occasional printing. And by that, I mean documents or books which are printed for a specific purpose. In other words, to define ephemera by function rather than by physical form. They may be single sheets like posters, or there may be small pamphlets like some book prospectuses, or they may even be substantial volumes like auction catalogues or even guidebooks. What links them is their limitation by practicality and time. Now material of this kind is of course notoriously prone to destruction, but enough survives to give, a, give us some idea of the sort of work which came from the presses of provincial England. The smallest documents, Uh, printed in tens of thousands are the rarest, theater tickets, waybills, that kind of thing. This kind of printing was, in fact, a major beneficiary of industrialization, and by the end of the century, we find printers in the industrial areas who are calling themselves things like box printers, who were, in fact, concentrating on packaging and labeling. Provincial printers derived most of their work from jobbing printing of this kind and even the grand and prosperous newspaper proprietors did a great deal of jobbing work on the days when they weren't printing their newspapers. But there are, of course, a few provincially printed books, and I propose to devote the rest of my lecture to them. By far, the largest group of provincial books was the chapbooks, with which I would associate single-sheet ballads, Um, although they're often considered separately because of this false distinction between... um, Ephemera. Sorry, I need to go through these very quickly at this point. That's what we're looking for. Between books and ephemera, the production of ballads and chapbooks goes back to the earliest days of provincial printing. The most famous name is that of Claude Dicey of Northampton, the owner and printer of the Northampton Mercury, who, in the 1720s and 30s, produced thousands of chapbooks. In 1736, he moved to London. Um, for reasons relating to the copyright law, which I'll spare you. Um, But his son, his father William, remained in Northampton and continued to churn out popular literature, both in single sheets and in chapbooks. Less less famous but equally prolific was one J. Bence of Wooden Under Edge in Gloucestershire. Um, He was out there, again, because of copyright problems. He produced a chapbook version of Robinson Crusoe a year after it was published and many others. John Cheney of Banbury specialized in chapbooks in the last quarter of the century, and so did one Fowler of Salisbury who printed maybe many hundreds of them between the 1770s and the end of the century. In fact, scraps of evidence suggest that most provincial printers were involved in chapbook and ballot printing. Luke Hansard, who's better remembered as the first systematic publisher of parliamentary debates, served his apprenticeship in Norwich in the middle of the 18th century and records in his autobiography that his master, John Crane, printed humbler authors, hymns, jest books, chapbooks, and ballads. The greatest centre of chapbook printing outside London was Newcastle-on-Tyne, where the tradition started in about 1712, and many of those chapbooks found their way northwards, um, usually in exchange for illegally imported Scottish reprints of books which were still copyright in England. The ballads and chapbooks throughout the country were aimed at a local market, which was often reflected in their subject matter. Distribution was therefore comparatively simple, for the printer could make use of established networks of newsmen and and chapmen, as well as booksellers. The chapmen who were peddlers seemed to have obtained their supplies from the booksellers and then gone on the road with them, and again, imprints will illuminate this to some extent. This is the imprint of the indictment, trial, and examination of Sir John Barleycorn. The distinction between chapmen and tradesmen is between travelers and shopkeepers. Now, the role of the shopkeepers is exemplified or clarified by another imprint, this from an excellent ballad of the life and death of King Richard III. These men, the tradesmen who are uh, of our previous imprint, um, are in effect the wholesale distributors of ballads and chapbooks. And interestingly, they are also, again, I think without exception, the agents of Dicey's newspaper, the Northampton Mercury. He was using his newspaper distribution network to make this work. But there are a few more substantial provincial books. But mainly, they're of purely local interest. Earlier, I showed you some slides of trials printed in London, but with local distributors here is one printed um, locally, but with a London distributor. Oops, sorry, there isn't. Here's here's one printed locally. Um, As you can see, it was a trial at uh, Bristol Assizes and printed in Bristol, with a few other distributors named around the country. here is another example, and this is taken from by far the largest category of provincial books, which is sermons. But you'll notice it was no ordinary sermon. It was preached, as you can see, at a meeting of the gentlemen Forest Forests and Gardeners of stamford Baron, and was printed by Mr. Francis Halgrave at Stamford in Lincolnshire at the request of the Society. I think it's not stretching the evidence too far to suggest that this was not a bestseller. Um, This is, for all practical purposes, privately printed for very limited local distribution. That's what the imprint tells us. This one is slightly different. Um, Again, preached on a special occasion. Again, I think we can be fairly certain, published at the request of those before whom it was preached. Um, But it's... And again, in a set printed for charity, you can see it was printed for the benefit of the lunatic asylum. Um, But it does, in this case, have a London distributor. Um, In other words, this was trying to get a slightly larger market. Um, This is another example of a very local book. This is a guidebook for mariners on the Yorkshire coast. You can see, again, um, all we have here is the printer's name. No indication about distributors of any kind. It was obtainable only locally. One of the minor points of interest of this book is that the printer did have a rolling press and was able to print that map. I think from what I've been saying, you can now understand why um, we sometimes find London names in provincial imprints. Because if a provincial book was to have the remotest hope of anything more than purely limited local circulation, it needed a London distributor. Who could put it onto the national distribution network. The kind of imprints that I've been showing you are very different from this kind of imprint. This book, although it is, strictly speaking, a provincial book, and as you can see, um, there is one provincial bookseller named here. Um, The sermon was actually preached, I ought to say, in Huntington Parish Church. This is aimed at an academic and metropolitan market. We do find some books like this, which happen to be printed, and this happens to be printed in Cambridge, but in in a number of large towns, but which have a major London bookseller as a national distributor. Um, I might say that the author of this sermon, you'll be glad to hear, got his rewards. He finished up as master of a Cambridge college and um, managed to hold two deaneries simultaneously for 25 years. The appearance of a London name in a provincial imprint is a very clear indication that the book was intended for more than a purely local market. And I would like to conclude with, if you like, the exception which proves the rule. On the whole, it was extremely difficult, in fact, for a provincial printer or publisher to get books of the right quality for the local market. Anyone who was anyone for prestige reasons wanted to have his book published in London, and the reason that was so prestigious was because that was the way to get reviews, that was the way to get proper circulation. But as I say, I would like to conclude with the exception who proves the rule, and the exception is William Ayres of Warrington in Cheshire. Now, it so happened that Warrington was the seat of one of the Nonconformist academies which were, for all practical purposes, the only functioning educational institutions in England in the 18th century. The tutors at Warrington are a very distinguished rota. They include people like John Aiken, Joseph Priestley, Gilbert Wakefield, John Enfield. Ayres had taken over a small business from his father a few years before the academy was opened. And once it was opened, he took advantage of this opportunity which had been so fortuitously offered to him. In 1760, he produced two books, the first which had ever recorded from the family press, which had then been in existence for nearly 40 years. One of these two books has 28 pages, the other has four. His next book was Priestley's course of lectures on the theory of language and universal grammar, a duodecimo of 314 pages. Now, it wasn't produced without some difficulty. Um, At one point, Priestley wrote to one of his friends that About a fourth part of my lectures are printed off. Ayres is too slow, but he has no help. His boy, his only assistant, has left him. This was a very small-scale enterprise at this point, but Ayres expanded rapidly, and in fact, in between 1760 and the end of the century, he printed over 200 books. Ayres's publications, because of the presence of this unusually distinguished body of men in the town, are very remarkable. He published five books by Priestley, including one of Priestley's key works, The History and Present State of Electricity, in 1767. He did seven books by Wakefield, ten by Aitkins, sixteen by Enfield. Uh, Thomas Pennant picked him out to publish one edition of The Tour to Scotland and one edition of British Zoology. He gained himself a reputation as a very good printer, and a well-deserved reputation as a very good printer. He published one of the most influential books of its kind ever written, John Howard's State of the Prisons in England and Wales. And it was a very remar- altogether a very remarkable achievement. He shows us that provincial printers could technically be the equal of the best that London could offer. But the reason why it was possible is the clue to why it happened so infrequently. It was possible only because this group of authors happened to be there. They were in fact the kind of authors whose books most provincial printers would have printed anyway. They were people who happened to live in the town. They just happened to be a very distinguished community. Uh, The only thing which really makes Ayres different is the quality of those authors and the fact that he sees with both hands the opportunity with which fate had so unexpectedly presented him. Well, I hope I've been able to give you some impression of the provincial book trade in 18th century England. I've abbreviated it. I'm afraid I... have oversimplified it to some extent, but I hope that the central argument is clear and I believe at any rate that it's demonstrated. The provincial booksellers, large and small alike, were essentially distributors, not producers. Those who were printers worked on a small scale for a local market with rare exceptions, but that does not diminish the importance of the provincial trade. Its efficiency and its size was a key factor in enabling the Londoners to maintain their jealously guarded control over English publishing, because it gave them easy access to the huge provincial market. And through that, the booksellers and the book trade played some part in cementing the cultural and political unity of their country. Thank you. it around the school uh, after they get themselves organized a number of my present students will be printing uh, octavo half sheet imposition in, position in uh, room 502 the present book arts press for those who want to grab a drink and look in on them between the press room and the student lounge 523 uh, is the exhibition And in 523 is uh, Dorothy Romney with uh, much food and drink. So I will see you uh, around.